I want you to get your Bibles and open them with me this morning. And we're going to go to Acts chapter 16, 16th chapter of the book of Acts, which is possibly one of the most popular chapters in the whole of this book of Acts, and I can certainly tell you that it's one of my personal favorites for many reasons, particularly as it comes to the end of the chapter, because it very simply and yet very profoundly brings into great focus a subject that I have been involved with for many, many years, and that's the subject of worship. Having been a worship leader in this fellowship for a long time, primarily in this fellowship, and taught at worship conferences across the country for some period of time, I have spent a great deal of my life over the last 30 years examining, looking at, trying to understand greater levels of worship, trying to understand the importance of Uh, what we do as we come together as a body of believers in corporate worship. And so it is, uh, it's an important, it's an important thing that we do. And I am going to discuss it a little more as we come to the end of this chapter today because there's some significance for us here. But before we get there, let's do a brief recap of how we get to chapter 16. I won't be long with that, but I I don't want to go charging into the chapter without us having at least some appropriate groundwork. And that's this, Paul and Barnabas, have, they have completed their first missionary journey, and they're taking the gospel into what we know today as Turkey, bringing the gospel to the Jews there and to the, the Gentiles as well, which was a brand new thing for the Gentiles to receive the gospel. So that's taken place. And they've come to the end of this first journey, but Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement, and remember... But that is over. It's because John Mark, who is the cousin of Barnabas, Barnabas wants him to go with them as they go back and revisit the cities that they have been involved with on this first journey. But Paul says, no, I don't want him to go because he bailed out on us. And when the going got tough, he, you know, he cut and ran. And so my trust in him has been pretty well shot. And I, I, I don't want him to go with us. And so it became contention between Paul and Barnabas. So they go their separate ways, Paul and Barnabas do. Barnabas takes John Mark, and he heads out for Cyprus. But Paul now has Silas with him, and they're going throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches there. And so what happens is we don't have just one missionary team as we had before. We now have two missionary teams, and the work of the Lord goes on as we come to chapter 16. Excuse me. Paul and Silas come to the city of Lystra, where they pick up young Timothy, who joins them on their journey. And their journey is all about encouraging those who have become followers of Jesus. Encouraging those who have become followers of Jesus. Something we all should be involved with, and that's encouraging others. So let's pick it up now at verse 6 of chapter 16. Excuse me. Chapter 6 of verse 16, and I hope you'll keep your Bibles open because I really, this is one of those messages I want to work my way through the chapter, and let's see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 6. Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus 
did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. Here's the first thing I want you to notice, and that's this. The first direction that they get as this newly formed missionary team, the first guidance that they get from God was negative. It was negative. It was, no, no, you can't go there, and you don't get to do that. How many of you know we don't like no? We like yes. How many prefer yes to no? Okay, some of you. The truth is, we don't want, we don't want to be told we can't do something. We don't want to be told we can't, because the truth is, we want what we want when we want it. We've decided how we want it to go, and we prefer to hear the divine yes. But hearing no is not near as exciting as it is to hear yes. We really get our idea in our mind of what we want to take place, and it's so much more wonderful when the Lord just endorses it and says, yes, you can do that. But the fact is, sometimes the answer is no. How many of you have ever heard no before? I'm not talking about from your spouse. I'm talking about from... Sometimes the answer is no, and we don't like it. I have people come to me. I had a, someone not too long ago said, but, but pastor, the doors aren't opening, and it's just not happening. And I even prayed about it, like twice. And then I called my girlfriend, and we prayed over the phone and everything. But it's just not happening. And so, you know, I tried to find my gentle, tactful way to say, well, dear one, that's because the answer is no. The answer was no. So, well, what do I do? Well, there's one thing to do. Put your big girl britches on, accept it from the Lord, and go on. That's how you deal with that. Sometimes the answer is no, and God, any parent in this house ought to know what that's like. You can't always say yes to your child. Very often you have to say no, it's because it's for their own good. You know, if I had, wouldn't you have thought that the Lord would have said something positive to encourage these guys. But no, the first guidance he gave them was, uh-uh, you're not going there. Mm-mm, you're not going to do that. That was the first direction that they, that they got. But as I read this, and you may have had the same experience that I've had, don't you wonder how they knew that the Spirit was preventing them from going to these places? How did, how did they know that? How did they get such clear, strong direction? Was it through one of the gifts of the Spirit? Was there a message in tongues and an interpretation? Was there a prophetic word? Or was it simply just discernment that they had, that they weren't to go to those places? Well, whatever it was, and Scripture doesn't say here specifically, whatever it was, it was obvious to them that the Lord was giving them clear direction, no, you are not to go there. And church, we need to always allow this to be a reminder to us that we need to learn to trust the spirit that dwells within. Give me an amen on that. Learn to trust the spirit that dwells within. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then you can be filled with the Holy Spirit who can give you guidance. His whole purpose is to give you guidance and wisdom and direction. And our responsibility is to learn to trust the spirit that dwells within. So maybe you've walked into the place today looking for guidance. Maybe you're facing some big question. Trust the Spirit of God that dwells within. Ask Him. Just simply ask Him, Lord, I need a word from you. I need direction from you. I need to know, is it this way or is it this way? And as you do it, humbly submit yourself in obedience to the Lord. 
And when we do that, he, it's amazing what, what God can do. Remind him as you remind yourself that you are his to command where he leads you. Ask him for his divine direction and then stand back and see what the Lord can do. It's amazing what the Lord can do. Let's read on, verse 9. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave from Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Now, something just happened as we read that, and it's so subtle that I wonder if you missed it. You may have, because I have missed it before until just the most, really the most primary of study of these two verses explains what just happened. Let's look at it again. There's, there's a little mystery here. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia. Here's what happens. Up to this point, this entire chapter has been in the third person. It's been, and, and we know that the book of Acts was written by, thank you, by Luke. And we know that Luke, by profession, is a, he's a doctor. He is a physician. So the interesting thing happens right here in verse 10. This little shift goes from third person to first person. Before that, he's talking about what they did and what happened up to that point. But what we clearly understand now is that Dr. Luke has joined the team. It's Paul and Silas. They picked up Timothy and Lystra. And now right here, he has joined them. It's very, very, very subtle. I just wonder. It's just I'm throwing it out there for you to consider. I just wonder if there's something really significant about that. And connecting this back to them getting such clear direction that they were not to go to the other places that they wanted to go. Is it possible that it was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Is it possible there was some sort of, of physical infirmity that he needed the services of Dr. Luke to come and join them? It's interesting how that all comes into play here that kept them from where they wanted to go as they were wanting to go into the provinces of Asia or Bithynia. Here's the, here's the point in all of that. Sometimes our circumstances are speaking to us. Sometimes the Lord can speak to us through our circumstances. We are sometimes prone to think, well, here's what I want to do for God, and here's my spiritual life, and I've got it, I've got it all ni nicely compartmentalized over here, and then here's all the stuff I face in life. And we have them so separated and such distance between them when all the while the Lord is saying, see these circumstances? I'm the one who has you in those circumstances. Now hear the voice of the Lord in them. Now I'm not drawing specific conclusion, conclusions about what exactly happened to Paul and Silas right here, but I am saying this. We need to look at the circumstances God has us in and sometimes say, Lord, is it these circumstances that is preventing me to do what I'm wanting to do? Are you in this? Are you trying to speak to me and say something? Now back up to that verse 9. That is this, where it tells us clearly that Paul had a vision. And that vision came to him. I'm going to tell you a story that I, I think I've told you before. But for those of you who are really searching today, who are really seeking, I, I want you to hear this clearly. It was about this time three years ago, 2010, October, November, December, that the 
winds of transition of leadership in this church were about to were beginning to take place. I was becoming aware of it. It was rattling my cage. Uh, it felt like the earth was shaking beneath me. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. None of us knew exactly what was going to happen. All I knew is that there was, you know, there was the talk that possibly I was going to be involved in leadership either on a temporary basis or a permanent basis, whatever it was going to be. And let me tell you, my world was rattled. I couldn't talk to hardly anybody about it except my wife, and I would go home and pace the house and go, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Really? This is what you've got in mind? This is really? me? Why would you? All of that was happening. It so happened that I was involved in a recording project in Nashville at a, at a studio. It's a place that's a campus of, um, of about seven studios, a large orchestral room and some medium-sized rooms and small rooms. And I was in the, doing an orchestral project. And there's a very, very, very well-known arranger orchestrator of Christian music that I've known and admired for many, many years. His name is Larry Goss. I learned so much of what I ever did uh, musically from Larry Goss. Though we weren't together, I studied his work. And Larry suffers today from throat cancer. And he can barely talk above a whisper. And so it was a cold day, a day much like this in Nashville. And I'm standing at the, at the, uh, at the, um, at the console looking out the orchestra and it's in a large room. And all of a sudden the door opens and someone escorts Larry in because he's very weak and frail. He's wrapped up in a coat and the scarf all the way around his neck. And the person with him said, is Dan Smith in the room? And I said, yes. Oh, my goodness, that's Larry. And Larry came to me. I went and embraced him because I don't see him very often, but I love and respect this man so much. I said, oh, Larry, it's good to see you. And he pulled my ear down to his mouth because he can barely talk above a whisper and put his hand on the back of my head and, and he put his, my ear right by his mouth. And he says, I've come to say one thing to you. Now, Larry knows nothing of what's going on in my life, nothing. I said, okay, what's that, Larry? He says, look very closely at the things the Lord is bringing to you. Consider very closely the things the Lord is bringing to you. I tell you, it was, and then it was like I was so lost after that. I think he left and went on his way, and I, I hardly said goodbye because I was stunned by what he was saying. But it reminded me of the importance of things that come to us and that we so are quick to dismiss that which looks like coincidence or happenstance. But I'm here to remind you today that possibly the Lord has put something in your path. He is saying something to you. He, something has been brought to you. It has come to you. And we need to look carefully at what the Holy Spirit is doing as things are brought to us. Now that is not to be misunderstood to say that in our Christian walk we are simply to sit back, do nothing, and wait for the Lord to do everything. No, I am not saying that. Not saying that at all. There are people who will do that. Well, I'm just waiting on the Lord. Well, the truth is the Lord gave you a swift kick a long time ago and you're not moving. We don't just lay back and do nothing. However, there are those times, and my goodness, I've experienced seasons of this, where something literally was brought to me right in front. So I'm saying to you today, what's right in front of you? What is right in front of you? What has the Lord placed right in front of you that you're possibly even trying to dismiss or move it out of your way so that you can go on to whatever? No, look at that which the Lord has brought to you. He is very capable of giving direction right in, in, in a circumstance just like that. Let's go on with verse 11. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day we landed at Neapolis. 
And from there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And there we stayed for several days. Now this is going to be very significant because this is where the stage gets set for something that is incredible to take place. We know that from this experience that is about to take place that a church gets established and later Paul will write a letter to this church which we will know as the book of, it's happening in Philippi, it's the book of, oh you're so quick. It's the cold weather. I'm going yeah, to give you a free pass for the cold weather day. So that's what's about to happen. Verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. Now, why did they think that? Because in that culture, in that day and time, it was very normal that a city like Philippi, there was not a huge Jewish population, so there was no synagogue there. Now, we know Paul, with whatever missionary team he was involved with, they would go first to the synagogue when they came into a city. But they've come to Philippi, there's no synagogue there. And so the Jewish people, to be not bothered by the Gentiles or not bothered by others, they would typically go, and it was understood that they would go to the bank of a river for prayer. And that's exactly what happened. So it was reasonable to him, and lo and behold, that's where he found them. So we went to the, um, a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. I'm so glad the women are people of prayer, but God give us more men who are men of prayer. Is that the loudest amen I'm going to get from you? Come on, give me one on credit. I'll say something good in a minute, okay? <laughs> Maybe. <clears throat> so we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. Now, all through this book of Acts, we see people that sometimes it's whatever translation you're looking at, it says God worshipers. These are people who were not specifically Christians yet, but they were sick and tired of all of the thousands of gods of, of the Roman Empire and, and all of the decadent ways that were going on. They, they had looked on that and become tired of it, and they've become at least infatuated in, to some deg degree with the God of the Jewish people. And so they were also people who went and worshipped God. So she was considered a God worshiper, this Lydia. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart. How many of you are glad that the Lord has opened your heart? You know what, church? We should always be praying that the Lord will open our hearts and open the hearts of our loved ones and those for whom we are praying. When the choir sings, oh Lord, open our hearts today as we're worshiping you, Jesus. We, see, we used to sing, Lord, open the eyes of my heart because I want to see you. And sometimes we might be tempted to say, well, I get, I'm the one who determines when my heart gets open. Well, it's, that's all caught up. The truth is we don't do anything apart from the Lord. It's the Lord who opens our hearts. That's all caught up in the mystery of his sovereignty, her sovereignty and our free will. But we need to always be praying, Lord, open our hearts. For my spouse or my children, whoever it is, Lord, open my heart. Open their heart. Well, that's what happened as she listened. The Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with other members of her household and she asked us to be her guests. 
If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. Notice the first thing that she did when she became a believer. What's the very first thing she did? She began to function in the gift of hospitality. In the gift of hospitality. And that reminds me, you know what the truth is? I know we live fast-paced lives. And we're going so quickly we can barely keep up ourselves. And we hardly even have meals with our own family members anymore. But oh God, give us the gift of hospitality in the church. When was the last time you opened your home? And just said, sure, come on, come and eat a meal with us. Just come and spend the evening with us. Or maybe because of our, our culture today, maybe you said, well, let's, let's go out, and, let's go out and, and have a sandwich together. Let me buy you some ribs. You're in Texas now, buddy. Come on, let's go have some ribs. Sounds kind of good right now, doesn't it? The gift of hospitality. Just being able to be hospitable to someone. Opening your home. That's what we're told to do. Paul even said later in the book of Romans, when, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. No, we tend to say, no, I got me in mind. That's it. Might have my kids over, my grandkids, maybe a cousin. That's about it. God, give us the ability to open our home and be people who are hospitable because that's the mark, one of the marks of a Christian. A Christian home is one with an ever open door. Can I get an amen on that? So understand here, Lydia came from the top end of the social scale. But we're about to read of a young girl who came from the bottom end of the social scale. Verse 16. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. Slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, not to the girl, notice, not to the girl, but to the spirit within her, he said, 14 words, a 14-word prayer, and he was done. That's all it took. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and instantly it left. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't go on and on forever. 14 words, and the demon was cast out. Now, here's what's interesting. What was wrong with what she was saying? What was wrong with that? These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Seems correct to me. Seems accurate to me. But something about it bugged Paul to the point of absolute exasperation. Now, as we look at this, let's remember the young lady was possessed of a demon. And what we don't know, specifically the, the word does not tell us, is how she was saying it. She was saying the right words, but we don't know how she was saying it. It literally could have been a guttural sound coming from her belly. There's reason to believe that sort of action has taken place. It could have been in a shrieking voice of some kind, a very annoying shrieking. We don't know. But this little incident right here reminds us of a couple of things. I want you to listen carefully. 
it reminds us this. It matters not only what you say, but how you say it. It matters not only what you say, but how you say it. How many people do you and I know that have all the right words? They know the right thing to say. They've got the scriptures memorized and they can quote it from memory. They can make a very true statement, but it also must be taken into consideration how they say it and the spirit with which they say it. That's also a part of what's happening. Obviously, the way this young slave girl was communicating was an irritant to Paul. And he simply prayed a prayer of 14 words, and the demon came out. Church, let's be careful not only that we're saying the right thing, but that we're saying it in the right spirit. Amen to that? The second idea that comes from this to me is this. Even demons know the truth and know how to present it. Even demons know the truth. We know that all through Scripture. They know the truth, and they know how to present it. How many believers have we seen, gullible and naive, though they may be, follow some ministry or some person who knew how to, in the beginning, say the words that sounded right? Man, that, that sounds just like what I learned in Sunday school. They must know what they're talking about. And in the process of that, they swallowed some bit of something that looked like it was so true because it sounded right to them, but it led them to utter disaster. I'm telling you, it can happen over and over and over again, which is why we must ask the Spirit of God who dwells within us to give us discernment and understanding on who we're going to follow. The truth is, we follow no one but Jesus Christ and the Word of the Lord. But many, many people can be swept away because someone knows how to use the right words. The slave girl did. They can use the right words, but we have to be very, 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 very careful. I said there was two things, but there's one more. This young lady, it's, there's reason to believe she possibly was skilled in being of, even a ventro ventriloquist. She had fallen to the hands of some very unscrupulous men who used her misfortune for their gain. And they didn't want her healed. They liked what she did. She was working for them. They didn't want her healed. And it meant the end, because it meant the end of cash flow from her. Anytime things look a little funky to you, something about this doesn't feel right, there's a clue here. Follow the money. I'm doing the best I can, buddy. Follow the money. Look and see what's happening here because whether we like it or not, money guides and directs the motives of so many people. And that's what happened here. This young gal had become a source of income for these unscrupulous people. So no wonder they were ticked off when in 14 words, Paul cast the demon out of her and she's set free. That's what's happened here. But it is every Christian man and woman's duty to ask themselves, is the money that I'm earning worth the price? And do I earn it by serving or do I earn it by exploiting my fellow men? Verse 19. Her master's hopes, the young demon-possessed girl now set free. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not happy about this. And they start saying, the whole city 
is in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. And then it gets worse. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. Really? For doing what? Freeing a demon-possessed girl. That's what's happened here. A mob forms, and they're stripped, and they're beaten with wooden rods. They weren't just beaten. They were severely beaten. And then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to be sure, make sure that they didn't escape. And so the jailer put them not just into the dungeon. He put them in the inner dungeon. And he clamped their feet in the stocks. Notice as we look at chapter 16, if Lydia came from the top of the social strata and the slave girl came from the bottom, then the jailer came from the middle class who made up the Roman civil service, making this story hit the whole gamut of society. No one's excluded. It's the inner dungeon where they are thrown. No light, no air, no sewer system, no anything. It's completely miserable, rancid, disgusting smelling in there. Can't see anything. And that's the hole where Paul and Silas were dropped for doing nothing except freeing a demon-possessed girl. And then the jailer puts them in stocks, whether their legs fit in it or not, shoved them in there. They may be bleeding, they may be cut, they may be whatever, and clamped them in. And then their hands were put. And in some situations, even their neck was put into, into stocks and clamped down. So here these guys are, Paul and Silas. They're in stocks. They've been scourged. They've been beaten with these wooden rods. They're in a dungeon that stinks to high heaven. There's no light, no nothing. They're left there to rot simply for preaching the gospel. And so that's the scene. I hope you've got it clearly. Let's read on, verse 25. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Now, you got the contrast here? Their circumstances haven't really done anything wrong, but they were mobbed, they were beaten, clothes stripped off of them, thrown in prison. And what are they doing? They're praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake. And the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open. And the chains of every prisoner fell off. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. A bigger hallelujah than that. Here's what I want you to understand about this. There are commentators who say, oh, earthquakes were common in that day and time, in that area, blah, 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 blah. Here's what I want you to know. Those tectonic plates were perfectly in control of a sovereign God who knew exactly what was taking place and knew exactly what was going to happen, the right amount of pressure, the right everything. That was in God's hands completely. He was the one who ordained that. He's the one who did that. And so what, how should that encourage you and me today? Because your world may be shaking underneath you. You may be feeling the shaking of the tectonic plates of your life, but I want you to know it's perfectly in control of an almighty God. Come on, give the Lord a clap of praise today. 
You may think you're falling apart. You may think the whole thing's going to pot. You have no idea about the future. You have no idea where it's going. But that shaking that you're feeling, it's in the hands of the Lord. And the Lord is with you, and he's going to see that you come out of this on the other side just fine. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors were wide open, and he assumed the prisoners had escaped. So what did he do? He drew his sword to kill himself. Because here's what was understood. If the prisoners escaped under your watch and you were the jailer, it was automatic that you would die. But Paul shouted to him, stop. Don't kill yourself. We're all still here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Have you ever been trembling? Have you ever had your world so shaken, everything underneath you crumbling to such a degree that literally you were shaking? And it just felt like your insides were about to just almost explode. Have you ever been at that, at that place? Most of us have at some time. And then he brought them out and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Something incredible had happened. He knew that his life was on the line. And I know that there are people in this room this morning that you're feeling that shaking and you are trembling inside and you ought to be standing and shouting at me, Sir, what must I do to be saved? If you're in the house today and you need to come to that place, your life is in such a place, let us know how we can pray with you because the truth is all you have to do is believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Bless the name of the Lord. That's what they replied. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. And then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house, and he set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Here's the challenge for me. Here's the challenge for Dan Smith with what we just read. There's a truth here that just nails me. And I hope it nails you too. And it's this. Paul was willing to open the door of salvation to the jailer who had shut the door of the prison on him. Paul was willing to open the door of salvation to the very man who had thrown him in the jail and shut the door of the prison to him. Does that speak as loudly to you as it does to me? You know, wouldn't you have thought that when the earthquake took place and the doors fell open and the chains fell off and the jailer drew his sword to fall on it, most of us would have said, here, buddy, let me help you. For what you did to us, yeah, you, might, you probably deserve to die. Let's, well, here, we'll help you with that. That's what most of us would have done. But look what Paul did, and what a challenge that is to all of us. Those of us who are prone to carry a grudge, to not forget the dirty stuff that's been done to us and hang on to it for years and years, if not decades, he was willing to set that aside and see the bigger picture because he had a greater focus, and it was this. No, I will open the door of salvation to you. Never a grudge in his nature. He could preach to the very man who had fastened him in the stocks. So Paul and Silas were praising God and singing hymns to God in the middle of being in stocks in the dungeon after being whipped and beaten with rods. And I want you to look quickly with me at what an intense focus they had because their focus became their reality. 
not their circumstances. Their focus became their reality, not their circumstances. I read an interesting article this week <clears throat> about a, uh, a professor from Northwestern University who had done research on medalists, people who had Olympic medalists. It's a lady by the name of Vicki Medvik. She studied Olympic medalists and she discovered that bronze medalists were happier than silver medalists. And here's why. Her study revealed that silver medalists tended to focus on how close they came to winning the gold but missed it. And so they weren't satisfied with their silver. Oftentimes it was literally .00 whatever that kept them from winning the gold. They were so focused on that that they wanted that they couldn't even enjoy the silver medal. Bronze medalists tended to focus on how close they came to not winning a medal at all. So they were just happy to be on the medal stand. So they were much happier than the silver medalists. And I think that study reveals a fascinating part of our human nature. Your focus will determine your reality. How we feel isn't determined by objective circumstances. If that was the case, silver medalists would be happier than bronze medalists because they had an objectively better result. But how we feel isn't determined by our objective circumstances. How we feel is determined by our subjective focus. Here's another way of saying it. Your internal attitudes are more important than your external circumstances. Let me say that one more time. Your internal attitudes are more important than your external circumstances. So you might be saying to me, Dan, what does that have to do with worship? Well, glad you asked. Because a worshiper makes a predecision to look for something to praise God for, even in the midst of very dire circumstances. That's what a worshiper does. They're looking for something to praise God for. Let me share very quickly with you something that I've learned over the years. I, I've discovered this about me. That when I get the blues or if I'm prone to any measure of depression or being you know, concerned about something and down in the dumps, you know what I found out when I really look at it? That I somehow have zoomed in on something about me. You know how on our devices now we, we can pinch and, and open it up and zoom way in on something? That's what happens. The next time you're facing a bit of depression, and I'm not minimizing those who suffer with real genuine, genuine clinical depression. I'm not talking about that. But those of us who get the blues over something, you know what's probably happened? You've gotten real focused on something. You have zoomed in and pinched that thing open where it won't go any further on one thing that has got you troubled. And the truth is, we need to learn how to zoom out and get the bigger perspective. Learn to pinch this way, where you zoom out and get some better perspective and looking at the big picture. That's exactly what this young college student did, this young lady, as she wrote this letter to her parents. Dear mom and dad, I have so much to tell you. Because of the fire in my dorm set off by student riots, I experienced temporary lung damage and had to go to the hospital. While I was there, I fell in love with an orderly and we moved in together. I dropped out of school when I found out I was pregnant and he got fired because of his drinking, so we're gonna to move to Alaska where we might get married after the birth of our baby, your loving daughter. P.S. None of this really happened, however, I did flunk my chemistry class. And I just wanted you to keep it in perspective. How many parents go, oh, thank God she just dunked her. Oh. 
It's about perspective, folks. Sometimes you need to zoom out and look at the big picture. You fail a chemistry exam and it feels like the end of the world, but it's not. So how do we zoom out? As I bring this message to a close, I got one, a one-word answer. Worship. That's how you zoom out. Worship. Because worshiping is taking our eyes off our external circumstances and focusing on the Lord. We stop focusing on what's wrong with us or our circumstances, and we start focusing on what's right with God. Paul and Silas could have zoomed in and complained about their circumstances. God, we cast out a demon, and and this is what we get. We're on a missionary journey, and we get beaten and thrown into jail. But they made a choice to worship God in spite of their external circumstances. Because here's what worship does. It restores spiritual equilibrium. I don't know about you, but I get out of balance every once in a while. And there are some of you in this room that are so out of balance, you don't remember what it's like to sense the presence of God. I practiced on being, talking straight, okay? But it's true. For some of us in this room, it's been so long since we've really laid ourselves before the Lord and worshiped Him that we are so out of balance. Worship restores your spiritual equilibrium. It helps you regain your perspective. If you are so zoomed in on a problem today, you probably need to zoom out, and the best way for you to do that is through worship. It enables you to find something right to praise God about even when everything else seems to be going wrong. Worship is zooming out and refocusing on the big picture. It's refocusing on the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. It's refocusing on the fact that God loves us even when we least expect it and when we least deserve it. He still loves us. It's focusing on that. It's refocusing on the fact that God is going to get you where he wants you to go. Is it easy? No. It's not easy. Nothing is more difficult than praising God when everything seems to be going wrong. And we all are living proof of that. But one of the purest, most priceless forms of worship is praising God when you don't feel like it. You know why? When you do that, you're making a statement to the Lord. Lord, I don't feel like it. I don't even want to be here. I don't like nobody in this room. But you know what? I lift my hands and cry holy like the choir sang a while ago. And when we do that, we understand we're not doing it because we feel like it, but we're showing God that worship is not based, our worship to him is not based on our circumstances. It is based solely on the character of God. And to the Lord, that is priceless praise. It's priceless to him. When you come before him, if you walked in this room today so with your head so bowed down, but you found the ability to lift your hands. And Lord, I'm not going to feel like a hypocrite for doing this. You know how it was in the car on the way here. You know how discouraged I am. You know all of that. This is not being a hypocrite. This is recognizing that I need you. I need you to come on the scene of my, of my circumstances and what's happening. And the truth is I care more about worshiping you than I care about wallowing in my circumstances. And that's priceless to the Lord. I want to remind you of this, and I am going to close sometime before the storm comes in. 
Dear friend, they can take everything away from you. Your clothes can be stripped away from you. Every possession that you have can be taken away from you. The concentration camps that took away their name and gave them a number. Their identity was taken. Everything was taken. But there is one thing, believer in Jesus, that cannot be taken from you, and that's the presence of Jesus. Let everything else go. Let them take it all. What is it that you stand in fear of today that they're going to take about in your circumstances? What is it that's about to go completely down the tubes for you? Whatever it is, whatever it is, if they take it all, if it all goes away, dear friend, you still have the divine presence of the Son of God. And nobody, nothing can take that away. Nothing can keep your spirit from soaring in Him. <laughs> worship is reframing our circumstances. It's how you zoom out. That's what happens when we worship God. It charges the spiritual atmosphere. It changes the spiritual atmosphere. Does that mean, Dan, that... Anytime I'm in trouble and circumstances are, are tough, that all I have to do is worship the Lord and everything changes? I can't answer that. I can't promise you that. But I can tell you this. When you worship the Lord, something will happen. He's not going to ignore you. He's not going to ignore the fact that you are giving a sacrifice of praise today because it wasn't convenient. It didn't match the mood you were in. It wasn't the way you felt. But you got beyond that to the point that you said, you know what, I'm going to lift my hands. It may be just like this. Maybe I'll get up to here. But I'm going to recognize this. I'm going to get my eyes off of the junk. I'm going to recognize that he's holy. His plan is good. He knows what he's doing. He's the sovereign God. And I'm going to bless his name. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, I know there's some of you in this room, your heads are so bowed down. Many of you I've talked with. I know it's tough. And in just about, just a couple of minutes, I'm going to give you just 20 seconds. And I'm going to ask you to just give God something. Give him a hallelujah. Give him a raised hand. Some statement that simply says, Lord, I recognize that you're the sovereign Lord. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to honor you in the mighty name of Jesus. Is there anybody in the house today that needs to give a sacrifice of praise? If you are, I want you to stand to your feet right now. Anyone that says it doesn't come easily, it's not based upon my circumstances because my circumstances are pathetic. But I recognize that today I'm going to rise above that. Just if Paul and Silas in their circumstances could worship the Lord in the midnight hour with their feet in stocks, their hands in stocks, Bleeding, torn apart, beaten. And I try to compare my circumstances to that. If they could do that, then I can lift my hands today and say, Lord, I bless you. For the next 20 seconds, I want you to out loud, whether you've ever done it before or not, out loud. Give the Lord something. Come on, church. Lift your hands. Give the Lord something. Bless the name of the Lord. Hallelujah to your name. For you alone are worthy of all praise. We bless you, Lord. We magnify you. There is none like you. You're the Alpha. You're the Omega. The beginning and the end. We bless your holy name. We bless your holy name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus.
Lord, let our praise ascend before your throne today. Let it be priceless praise. Because it's not based on how we feel. It's not based upon the fact that it's convenient. It's based upon the fact that we love you and we recognize that you are God and God alone. So receive our praise today in Jesus' name. Be seated for one moment as the ushers come and serve the elements of communion and we will be dismissed shortly after that. Blessed be our God forever.